much. You can make your way back to your seats. If you have a Bible with you today, the main place where we're going to be is Psalm 110. So you can turn there if you brought a copy of the Scriptures. We're going to be referencing a couple of other places, though, and so it might be best to follow along in the bulletin where we have these passages printed. We're in our second week in a series on the Ascension. And uh, as I just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, this is uh, for obvious reasons why we're studying this. We are becoming Ascension Church of Phoenix in two weeks. And uh, many of you have said, hey, we love that name. Uh, we want to know more about what that means. What does it mean for a church to be called that? Why would we uh, go in that direction? And the heart behind this series is to equip us to see how beautiful and amazing and important uh, this work is that Christ, after he was raised from the dead, we believe he was raised bodily from the dead, and 40 days later, in front of his disciples, he ascended into heaven, and that was more than just a cool magic trick. All right, that was the completion of the loop that God has created when he first descended and he became, uh, he added flesh to his divinity. He became a man and, and he accomplished redemption for us. And it's a beautiful picture and it means so much. And as you dive deeper into the scripture, you realize you know, how little we have paid attention to this amazing doctrine. And so part of my design in, in spending these few weeks with you is to equip you to know how to speak about it and think about it. And, uh, and so to that end, I'll remind you the overall picture. If you had uh, just an elevator ride, just, just 15 seconds to tell somebody about the ascension or about our church, you might say it's about Christ for all of life. Christ for all of life. That is, Christ isn't just a portion of our lives. It's not, he isn't just something that we believe in on the side. Actually, if you believe in what He has done, then, then, then it energizes your whole being, our whole existence towards Him. It's Christ for everything. When He ascended, He showed that His work on earth was finished and He is preeminent, as Colossians says. He is preeminent in all things. He is our life. Colossians again, Christ who is your life. Christ is for all of everything. Christ for all. If you have a little bit longer, as I said a couple weeks ago, and you have more than an elevator ride, you have five minutes and a napkin to write it down on. These are the four things that you could write down in the four weeks that we're using to talk about it. First, Christ has done it all. That is, He has accomplished salvation. When, when He ascended, he actually finished His work on earth for now. He's coming again. That's the, the end end of all His work. But His accomplishing of salvation is over. We have no more to do. No more to earn. We have Christ for every part of our salvation. He's done it all. Christ is over all would be the second thing that you would write down. That is His dominion. He has lordship over all. That's what we're going to talk about today. Christ is in it all. That is, that Christ is more than a portion of our life. He becomes our all. He actually calls us into a life of making much of Him and pouring out our lives, being living sacrifices to Him. So we give our lives to Christ. He is in everything. He transforms 
everything. And finally, Christ becomes our all. Not only has He done these things for us and teaches us how to do it, He invites us into an upward life of godliness. The ascension shows us that we have ascended with Christ. We sit with Him in the heavenly places and our lives now are meant to be growing up in Him in every way. So He becomes our all. In short, Christ is all for all of life. Today we're going to be talking about His dominion, that He is over all in the ascension and what that means. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 110, but we'll also read from Acts 2 and Philippians 2. Let's read these words together, starting in Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Moving to Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lastly, in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, He, that is Jesus, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was in high school, uh, it was probably the peak of, of this, this season, but maybe the season is still going on. I'm not relevant enough to know uh, how high school kids are, are shopping these days. But when I was in high school, it was a big thing to wear clothes from the thrift store. Uh, thrift store shopping was huge. And I know that's still a thing and people still shop at thrift stores. But when I say that, I want you to picture the the, you know, the rattiest, you know, uh, the most ironic, you know, Dr. Pepper, like sweatshirts, like, you know, really random graphic tees and sweatshirts. And that was what everybody that I knew wore. And so I myself was not immune to this. We, I shopped at the thrift stores all the time. And, um, and so it was, it was on one of these days that I was shopping at a thrift store, I don't remember which one, that I found my pride and joy. Uh, that I had for years and years. It was a used black and purple FedEx shirt. A polo that you see, the, the people that deliver your packages, in, they, they had one of those at a thrift store, and I thought, this is, 
this is amazing, and I can't pass this up. And so I wore that thing all the time. People knew me by it. They say, oh, he's wearing his FedEx shirt. Like, people will smile ironically. Oh, that's so funny. And uh, so I got used to comments about it. I would wear it all the time. And um, I remember I was at a 4th of July event in the, in the city where I grew up in Mississippi. And um, we were meeting some family and some friends there. Was, I was with my family. And somehow this friend of a friend or a friend of the family member, I ended up meeting someone, and I was wearing my FedEx polo shirt. And, uh, and he said to me, this guy that I'd never met before, uh, I didn't know you worked for FedEx. And I said, well, I, I don't. You know, this, I just wear this for fun. And, um, and I, I got a reaction from him that I'd never gotten from anyone else. Uh, instead of laughing or shaking his head, uh, seeing the irony, he became indignant. And he said, you can't wear that. Uh, and, and I thought he was joking at first, and he said, no, you can't wear that. It turns out, this guy that I'd never met before is a FedEx employee. And it's against the rules for uh, the, you know, people that work at the company to discard their clothing and, uh, and so he was saying, you can't, you can't do this. You can't wear this. Now, as an adult, uh, years later, I recognize the wisdom of what he's saying. I can think of a lot of bad reasons why someone would dress up in a FedEx shirt, you know, and so that makes some amount of sense, that rule. But at the time, I, of course, did not change anything about myself. I didn't care. I continued to wear the, the, the shirt in direct defiance to FedEx's uh, authority because FedEx didn't have any authority over me, right? It's fine if they have a rule for their employees, but I wasn't one of those employees. It's fine if they wanted to you know, suspend the person who gave up the shirt or whatever, but I didn't fall under that authority. They didn't have authority over my wardrobe. In fact, I was pretty sure that no one did. I made my own choices, right? I, I lived however I wanted to in that regard. Now, the question I want us to talk about today is, is there a type of authority that extends even to the level of what we wear or what we do or uh, how we spend our time or what kind of things we talk about and think about? Is there that kind of authority? And if so, what kind of an authority is it? Is it oppressive? Is it micromanaging? Is it, is it kind of, um, is, it, is it restrictive? Is there an authority that extends to my bank account? That extends to uh, how I spend my time or what I'm entertained by? Here's what I want us to see this morning. I would say the answer to that is yes. You knew I was going there. The ascension gives Christ recognized authority in every sphere of life. The ascension gives Christ recognized authority in every sphere. Christ is over all, even the smallest things of our lives. Now, you may have heard that before. Churches often talk about Christ is Lord. He's more than just our salvation, some people say. Christ is our salvation, but He's also our Lord. We're supposed to follow Him with our lives. I'm sure you've heard that before if you've been around church. Do you know how much in Scripture it's tied to His ascension? 
I'll show you in, in Philippians chapter 2, that last passage that we read, Paul here says in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in the exaltation that God, when God exalts Christ, that's when He gives Him this name to which every knee bows and every tongue confesses He is Lord. Every tongue, every knee, every place, every sphere. Now, what kind of authority is that? We're going to talk about that. Is it a restrictive authority? But first, we need to show biblically where this comes from. And I want to take you on a little bit of a journey, and I want to answer two obvious questions. But I want us to do so in such a way that we see where it actually the thread that we follow through the Scriptures is not just something that we tack on to our faith. It's actually woven throughout. So the two questions are this. Who is the Lord? And secondly, what is He the Lord over? And I am going to end that sentence in a preposition. So sorry, English nerds. And it's just natural. You know, just get over it. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, what is He Lord over? Oh, I'm not going to say over which is He Lord. Like, I'm not going to do that. So who is the Lord? What is He the Lord over? Obvious questions from a church perspective, if you're familiar with these things. And I want to give you the obvious answers. Who is the Lord? It is Jesus Christ. What is He the Lord over? Everything. Every sphere. But the way that we understand that is really important. And to, to understand it further, I want us to look at Psalm 110 very carefully. Uh, and this may seem like a random connection to you. But I assure you that it's not. Psalm 110 has some phrases in it. Maybe you've read it before. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand uh, until I make your enemies a footstool. And then at the end, it's you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we read these, these phrases. I don't know of any children's Bible that, that, that talks about Psalm 110. I don't know of any Awana or like, you know, Bible memorization that has you memorize Psalm 110. But... When you look at the Scriptures, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Not, not just psalm. It's the most quoted passage from the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament. It is everywhere. These first five verses are everywhere. We're talking about Jesus talking about them. Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, all of them see Psalm 110 as the culmination and the tie-in to all these messianic hopes, and yet we seem to show very little regard for their reasoning. And I want us to, to walk through their reasoning. And to, to answer an obvious question, who is the Lord? It's actually a more beautifully put-together thing than you can imagine. Psalm 110 begins with a problem, quote-unquote problem. It's an interpretive problem. What does this verse mean? The Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the question that, that drives that psalm or that verse one is who is the Lord? Specifically, who is the second Lord? 
mentioned. The first Lord, we know who that is. If you're reading that in the Hebrew Bible, if you're reading that maybe in your translation that you have before you, the first Lord there mentioned is probably in all caps because this is the name of God. Yahweh, the four letters. Y-H-W-H. This is Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord. Who is the second Lord? Further confusing because if you were an Israelite hearing this and not reading it, but the rabbi was just reading it, he would use the same word both times. He would say, Adonai says to my Adonai. He used the same words because the, the priests and the rabbis would not say the name of God like I just have said it. And so in t- just to hear it would be like, okay, who are we talking about here? But the first one is the Lord, Yahweh. But who is my Lord? It's a big question. And the rabbis don't actually know the answer when they're confronted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. What everybody agrees about Psalm 110 is that this is a messianic psalm. Everybody, the rabbis included, saw this psalm as the culmination of, um, of a promise of the Christ, a coming Messiah, a hope that was future. And so they believed this was a messianic psalm, but they didn't understand that part. Because Jesus asks them, who is the Christ to come? And they say, well, obviously, it's David's son. David's son is going to be the Messiah. But then Jesus says, well, how come in Psalm 110 then, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, and David wrote this psalm, how can David's son be David's Lord? How can he call his own son Lord? That doesn't make any sense to the rabbis. And the rabbis don't have an answer. They can't give Jesus the answer to that question. But they do know that this is about the Christ. They just can't understand why he would talk about him that way. If you're a modern scholar, if you think, like, if you want to uh, dismiss some of the biblical authority and you don't want to take. Uh, seriously, the, the, the superscription that says a psalm of David like everyone has for millennia and that Jesus himself assumes in Matthew 22 that David wrote the psalm, you can easily dispense with this problem by saying that David didn't write this and it must have been somebody in David's court. Somebody that worked for David and so they're observing and they're writing. They say, the Lord says to my Lord, the second Lord is David himself. Sit at my right hand. And then this psalm becomes about rah-rah King David. You know, let's, David becomes this picture of, of a Lord who then has the scepter of righteousness and authority. But if we're not going to do that, if we're going to take seriously what people have believed for millennia that David wrote this psalm that the rabbis and Jesus Himself said, then we still have a problem. Who is the Lord? When Jesus asks that hypothetical question, He is, of course, referring to Himself when He says that David's Son does become David's Lord. As we sing about at Christmas time, Jesus is David's Son and His Lord. He becomes the Messiah. And then we see 
if this is true, this Lord, it makes sense of the rest of the psalm that Jesus is the one who comes with this authority. In verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He does so through His life and His death and His resurrection. And we see the full story. And then the people offer themselves freely. Skip verse 3 for just a moment. And go down to verse 4 for the second kind of problem or confusing thing in this psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Quoted all over the New Testament. What is this about? Why does David talk about Melchizedek again With our children's Bibles, we don't often talk about Melchizedek, and yet the author of Hebrews, if you read that, you think, well, this is one of the most important biblical figures ever talked about, and we don't ever talk about him. But we, because we know very little, there's only three places in Scripture that talk about Melchizedek. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, which we're reading right now, and the book of Hebrews. And yet, if you read the book of Hebrews, it seems like, wow, this is like the most important thread ever, that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. What is going on here? Again, walk with me just for a moment. We're going to go into the details of it just so you can see that the answer to this question is satisfying in such a way to show us who the Lord is. The first instance of Melchizedek being mentioned is Genesis 14. And there's a story That's often not well known or even talked about. It's the story of Abraham and Lot, his nephew. Abraham, the great patriarch, has a nephew named Lot, and their their flocks grow so great that they have to separate. And, And so they move to different parts, and Lot moves to the area of Sodom. And Sodom has not been destroyed yet, and so he's there, he's flourishing. And then a great battle arises. Five kings against four kings. And there's this great kind of civil battle. Now, we don't picture like huge, like Lord of the Rings type battle. This is five kings and four kings means like, you know, a king is like a, a little, a local, a local kingdom, a city. So five cities against four cities. And Sodom is in the five city camp. And they are defeated by the four other kings in battle. And so Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets captured and he gets taken off um, and, and carried away. And somebody runs and tells Abram, hey, your, your nephew has been captured. And so Abram rescues him. He gathers 318 men, fighting men. He employs them to go with him. And they go and they fight these other five kings and they defeat them. And they bring the other four kings and they defeat them. And, and they bring Lot and all of the spoils of war back to Sodom. And the king of Sodom comes out and he congratulates him and thanks him for rescuing all these people. And he says, you keep the spoils of war and just give us the people back, which would have been a common practice to pay for all these 318 fighting men who, who left. You take the spoils and, and just give us the people back. But Abram says, no, I will, I will not take these spoils because I don't want you to think that I don't, anyone to say that Sodom has made Abram rich. That's the end of the story. That's, that's the story that we're given. And I gave it to you in its complete form, but there's an interjection into the story that I didn't mention. Before 
the, the king of Sodom comes back. But after Lot has been rescued, Melchizedek comes into the scene. Seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, the story makes sense without Melchizedek. But seemingly out of nowhere, Melchizedek comes in, who we're told is a priest of the Most High God. And if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that nobody is mentioned without reference to their sons and their fathers. There's always a lineage in the story of the Scripture. And there is no lineage for Melchizedek. We don't know who he is from. We don't know who his father is. This is a priest, we're told, of the Most High God. But he's also a king. I mean, his name means king of righteousness. Melech is the word for king. Tzedek is the word for righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. And we're told in the story that he reigns in the area called Salem, which is from the word shalom, peace, the kingdom of peace. So we have Melchizedek, who is the king of righteousness and basically the prince of peace. interjected into the story. And then you see when David is reading Genesis 14, he's reading the story of Scripture and he's writing Psalm 110, then you suddenly realize that he sees in this story a parallel for his own lineage, for his own story, because he now is the king of Salem. Only now it's called Jerusalem. And he is the king of peace, but he knows that he has a son who's coming, who is his Lord who will be the king of peace and of righteousness. And so you can see why David would use this interjection to say it's like this. It's in the order of Melchizedek. That's what this this coming Lord is is from. Priest forever with no lineage, uh, you know, no human father, so to speak, is this coming Messiah. Don't believe that Melchizedek was Jesus Himself popping up in the Old Testament. But in the unfolding story, as David looks at it, he sees this future hope to be like Melchizedek. And then in the book of Hebrews, we see he takes that further and says, well, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than anything else that's come before. He is the supreme Lord of all. Why do I tell you all this? Why do I unfold this this narrative, this thread? It's interesting, but is it more than interesting? Yes, because when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, this is the the conclusion that he comes to, quoting Psalm 110, uh, verse 34 of, of Acts 2. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, hear it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. You see, he brings all of the pieces together and he says, this is the promised One. When David was talking about this Lord, he was talking about Jesus. Know it for certain. This is who we're talking about. He is both Lord and Christ. They're one and the same. The Lord, the Christ, and Jesus. 
and something that we take for granted, but that the Scripture takes great pains for us to see in its detail. This was not a random event. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it wasn't just Him showing off. When He rose from the dead, it wasn't to prove that He could do magic tricks. When He was ascending into heaven, it wasn't just to show, hey, I can float. He is saying, look, this Jesus whom you saw, what David couldn't do, when He ascended, He brought together all of this that has been hoped for and longed for. It's the Christ is the Lord, is Jesus. That's who the Lord is. It's Jesus. But He's been anticipated and expected and longed for. Second question, what is He the Lord over? The simple answer is everything. But isn't it interesting how the Bible lists out the spheres. The, the shortest and simplest way that is most often in Scripture is that He is Lord of heaven and earth. That is the sphere of the heavens and the sphere of the earth. That's what Jesus says in this great commission. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's in heaven. First Peter chapter 3. He's gone into the heavens and the angels and the authorities and the powers have been subjected to Him. He's Lord of the heavens, Lord of the earth. Interestingly, Philippians 2 adds another sphere where it says that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is to say, the place of the dead, the place beneath. He is the Lord over His enemies. Psalm 110. Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. He must reign until all of His enemies have been put under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus has authority in heaven and earth and under the earth and over His enemies and over the church and over death. Every sphere is under the, the authority of Christ. Why then, some may say, does evil seem so powerful? If Christ is Lord over all, why does it seem like other things have more authority than Him? Well, the Bible answers that as well. It's very honest about it. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, at present... We do not see everything in subjection to Him. It's not going to appear like everything is in subjection to Him. The Bible is honest about that. It's going to appear like, like though the wrong seems off so strong, He is the ruler yet. You've got to take that perspective. It's going to seem like other things that He's in subjection to other things. But if you take the bigger picture, the Philippians chapter 2 picture where God highly exalts Him, and this is a future promise, and will bestow on Him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, everyone, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That is where the story is going. We don't see it right now, but part of the faith that we commit to, the believing the Gospel is that Everything is in subjection to Him, though everything doesn't look like it's in subjection to Him, but we believe that everything will be in subjection and also one day will appear in subjection to Him. He is over 
all. And so to follow Christ is to be on the right side of history. That phrase gets used so much right now. Are you going to be on the right side of history? Well, look at Philippians 2 and have faith in this. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. To be on the right side of history means to align yourself with Christ and to recognize His authority in all things. As we close today, what does this mean for us? These simple questions, simple answers, but so much beneath the hood. (laughs) Who is the Lord? He's Christ. What is He the Lord over everything? What does that mean for us? Three things as we close today I want us to see. First, it gives the church a mission. It gives the church a mission. This is very important that we understand as we begin a new season, a new chapter of our church, and we recognize the ascended Christ as our Lord, we want to do the things that He has called us to do. What did He tell the church to do? Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the mission of of the church and how does that begin that that phrase that he gives us all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples teach baptize and so that's our mission we had a a a membership class yesterday and that's what i said to our new uh, potential members so look here's a promise that the mission of this church is not going to change our vision may change. Our core values may change. You know, you've got to take into account that people come. There's, there's different seasons of the church. There's different leadership. There's all kinds of things that, that, uh, that make a church unique and make its contribution, um, you know, a unique experience. But look, at the end of the day, we have the mission that Jesus gave us. And if we're going to be in submission to Him, we're going to follow what He told us to follow. To, to focus on making disciples baptizing, teaching to obey, making disciples of Jesus. If we don't do that, then we are in rebellion to His authority. Because that's what He told us to do. It gives the church a mission, a focus. This is what we're going to be after. Secondly, it gives us as individuals a task. And this is the hard thing to put into action, but it is a necessary conclusion we have to come to. That if Christ is over all, then He's over you. He's over me. He's over my life. He's over my choices. He's over my direction. And what He requires of us is our heart, our allegiance, our desires, our bank accounts, our everything. And so we have to ask ourselves the hard question, which is, What in my life is not in submission to the authority of Christ? If He is over all, and if He is over me, then what does He require? It's a crushing question, isn't it? It's it's an overwhelming question. Because there's so much in our lives that that are not in subjection to Him. And that's why we need to hear exactly what that authority is like. The third thing we need to see is this. This invites us into freedom. 
the authority of God is not talked about in Scripture as oppressive, controlling, stifling, micromanaging. Christ comes to give us freedom. And that's not opposed to authority. This is unique. This is uniquely beautiful about our faith. That authority and freedom are not opposed to one another. Go back with me to Psalm 110. We skipped verse 3, but I want to go back to it now. When, when the Lord says to my Lord and He, he gives Him a scepter, He gives Christ the rule over our lives, what's the response of the people? In verse 3, what David predicted the response of the people, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours this is a picture of rising up to in obedience and this the womb of the morning getting up early this is to give an offering a free will offering that's literally what it is that to offer a free will offering of themselves or as peter is going to say later in the New Testament, that we are living sacrifices. That is the response to the authority of Christ is not to cower in fear or to, to feel oppressed. It is to say, this means that I get to live my life freely the way that I'm supposed to live. It's a unique, beautiful freedom that we're offered a life in Christ. Christ comes to give us life and that abundantly, not to oppress. So following Christ is not the end of your life as you know it. It's the beginning of your life as it should be. Think about the first instance of, Christ, of God's authority in the Scripture. After God making the heavens and the earth literally from the word of His power, speaking into existence all of creation, the, clearly the sovereign of all. And the first thing that He says with His authority to Adam and Eve is what? Behold, every tree of the garden I give you. But of this tree, you will not eat. Begins with the freedom and then gives the boundary, right? And that is always what we see in the Scripture. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. When we submit to Christ, we bow the knee, we receive Him, we receive life as it should be. It's freedom to do what we want to do, but when increasingly what we want to do is what He tells us is good for us. And so, they're not against each other. If God had intended us to lead these boring, stilted, uncreative, um, oppressed kind of lives, He would have created a different world for us to live in. But He invites us into the freedom of knowing Christ. And those boundaries are beautiful. Every artist knows that the restrictions are part of what makes freedom possible. That the edges of the canvas contain the work that, that the, the prompt, the writing prompt that gives you the idea is what then grounds you in something that is then beautiful. So the restrictions give us the freedom. When we bow the knee to Christ, we are actually invited into a beautiful life.
But we must bow the knee. We must recognize His authority. We must see the ascended Christ as preeminent and over all and give our lives to Him. And then He gives us of His life back. And we can live as sacrifices beautifully in the freedom that He has given us. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your Lordship over this new venture of our church, this new chapter, Lord, as we we move into a season of of unknowns and, and new things. We ask that You and Your authority would be over all. That we would submit willingly and joyfully to a life in You. That we would give up the individual things that we have run to for um, acceptance and pleasure and, and found uh, life in that are outside of you. And we've seen, perhaps, some of us, the emptiness of those things. But I pray that we would, we would recognize your gracious authority. That we would receive your invitation into life as it should be. So we honor the you exalted living Christ who reigns forever. We bow before you this morning and ask for your help to walk in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.